America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. We are forever indebted to those who have given their lives that we might be free. Ronald Reagan. Shiloh's American Story. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Shiloh Harris. I am extremely honored to have him on today. I have never met Shiloh before, and I am always thrilled when a total stranger contacts someone and they agree to come on and speak with us. So without further delay, welcome Shiloh. Oh, well, Tina, thank you so very much for allowing me to be on your show. And thank you so much for the invite. Although we haven't met, you know, the uh, brief conversations that we have had and the interactions that we've had, I can say that I, I'm very proud to know you and I uh, appreciate your patriotism. I appreciate everything that you stand for and I'm proud to be on uh, We The People. Wow, thank you. Can you begin by sharing a little bit of your story with us, maybe where at Shiloh as a small child up until you joined the military? Uh, how about this? How about I break the ice first? Kind of a funny story. I'll go ahead and tell you right now, it's meant to be funny. Okay. Yeah, it's a true story. Uh, as you know, as you know, Tina, and since we're doing this by video, you can see that I'm a burn survivor and I have scars on my face and, and uh, I don't have any ears that I'm wearing right now. Well, on one of my trips, you know, I do the motivational speaking and, and tour around and have been very, very blessed in my journeys since being injured in Iraq. And so anyway, got my ears for the first time. And I say this, you know, I never thought I'd have conversations like this. Oh, by the way, I got ears today, <laughs> you know, and so <laughs> <laughs> the funniest thing, I mean, there's so many stories that I can share with you, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to limit it to one. I'll take all your stories. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> so I am wearing my ears for one of the first times out in public. Um, I'm going to an event where I'm speaking. Uh, I was going to a church up in Lubbock. Well, on my way from San Antonio, where I live now, uh, driving up to Lubbock, I stopped in Midland, Texas at a Western wear store because I figured I probably ought to get a cowboy hat. Of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for one, I'm in Texas. And two, I had my boots and my big belt buckle on. And, and so I was like, you know what? I need to complete the outfit, one. Two, uh, the other thing is, I'm, since me being a burn survivor, I have a hard time regulating my body temperature. So I figured if I got a hat, it would help keep the sun off. Well, I go into the store and I tell the little girl, I want to get a cowboy hat, but I don't know what size my head is nowadays. Because this was still kind of early on in my recovery. and I hadn't fully gained all my weight back. And with my head being the way it is, it was a different size. So as I, so I told her, I said, let's just start small and work our way up. Well, she did what I asked, but she brought over a couple of hats. And I'm assuming that the second hat was her being a good salesperson. She probably figured she could size me up by looking at me. Well, the first hat she handed me, I set it on my head and it just barely fit on the crown of my head. It was a child's hat. It had the elastic band in it. 
So she she went to the extreme, you know. <laughs> well, obviously that one didn't fit. So I was pulling it off. And as I pulled it off, she had that other one in her hand. And she I, I know she just felt confident that she had the right hat, right? So she threw it up on my head and popped it down. Well, when she popped it down, both my ears popped off. <laughs> They're magnetic ears. So they just literally popped off and they hit the floor and they're bouncing around. <laughs> it didn't and, freak her out. Oh my gosh. I was, I was scrambling. It, it shocked me because I was like, you know, it was like my ears just popped off and I'm scrambling <laughs> around trying to chase my ears and they're bouncing under the clothes racks. And, and so anyway, I, I finally grabbed my ears and I, I look up. That little girl was just shocked to say the least. Oh my God. I, I mean, she's just standing there looking at me with her mouth wide open. Her eyes were real wide. And I was trying to think, oh my gosh, I got to say something, you know, to try to, and so anyway, I just looked at her and I was like, wow, I bet that happened a lot, huh? <laughs> and she, she, she couldn't even speak. Oh, that's funny. I get to my event and I'm, and I'm telling my buddies, one of them's a Baptist preacher and the other one's a Vietnam veteran. Well, I figured the veteran would be kind of poking fun at me. And anyway, he's, he's consoling me. He's patting me on the back. Like, <laughs> I was really embarrassed. I mean, even though I'm a lot hearted and, I can handle a lot. I was, I was embarrassed. So anyway, he's patting me on the back. Well, the Baptist preacher looks at me and he goes, dude, you could have got a free hat. I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> he said, when your ears popped off, you should have grabbed your head and just started screaming. <laughs> he said, the manager would have come rushing over and they probably would have gave you anything you wanted in the store. Can you imagine that poor girl though? <laughs> They had nightmares about that. She would have passed out. I don't know. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, that is funny. That's breaking the ice. Okay. Start with the beginning of your story. Where are you from and growing up? And why did you join the military? What's that story about? Well, I think everybody's got a pretty good idea about who I am now. Yes, I'm a character. Uh, <laughs> I use humor sometimes to, as a coping mechanism, you know, being on this interview though, and, and meeting you, I can see you've got a great energy and, uh, but yeah, I, I grew up in West Texas, so I'm a Texas boy. You know, I didn't just end up in Texas because of the military. I grew up here. I grew up out in West Texas around Odessa Midland. So it was ironic that that story happened out there in West Texas, but makes it a good coming home story sometimes, you know? Uh, but yeah, I grew up out in West Texas. My dad, Vietnam veteran. My grandfather was World War II, Korea. I grew up with that that military, uh, I guess you could say, influence that led me to join the military. Unfortunately, I didn't get to join the military until I was 27. After oh, nine. wow. Yeah. So a lot of people didn't know that. Uh, but I, I tried to join right after high school. But... Mm, just to give you a little background on that, my dad, he Vietnam veteran. Before they could die, they diagnosed what PTSD was. You know, Vietnam veterans just got labeled as crazy vets. You know, came back, became bikers and different things. Well, my dad, he definitely had a, a biking club, and uh, I was raised in the bar or the American Legion. Uh, you know, I just, I just didn't have a lot of life experience outside of that that life. Well, when I graduated high school I'd had a few things on my record and uh, it was an opportunity missed being able to join the military or at least so I thought 
I wanted to, but I didn't have that opportunity. At least the recruiters didn't want to take an opportunity at that time. But when 9-11 happened, I just got it in my head, even though I was 27 years old, I was like, you know what? This is something I feel like I have to do. And I, I was determined. I decided that I was going to go to every recruiting office until somebody took me. And I even had a friend of mine that was former military, retired colonel, that went to vouch for my uh, persona and, and my personality and, and just the kind of person that I was then, a uh, good person. And anyway, the Army ended up taking me. I joined the United States Cavalry, and it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. I love the military. I love being in uniform. I love being a part of a group of men and women that believed in protecting our nation. It was a great experience. I find this over and over with the people that I interview, and I find it so fascinating that the majority of you that join the military, you have family in the military. Why is that connection so strong? I'm not exactly sure, to be honest. I'm sure that if you were to talk to a psychologist, they could probably come up with something. Uh, I'm going to guess, in my personal non-medical opinion, that it probably has something to do with wanting to relate with that individual that was in your family, you know, that had that military experience, you know, because once you separate from the military, there's a lot of people that carry uh, that. It's, it's almost like you're wearing a uniform for the rest of your life. And I'm sure that's the same thing with police officers, firefighters, other first responders. You know, once you've done something like this, a service for the community, for your state, for your nation, it's something that, that you carry with you for the rest of your life. Whether you've seen big action or not, it's still an honorable service. And, you know, and, and as children, you know, we idolize people that carry themselves with confidence and with uh, something that is bigger than they are. And so, like with my father and my grandfather both, I knew I wanted to be in the military, even as a very young child. And so at 27 years old, when I got that opportunity, I had it in my head, regardless of how I was raised, I'm not doing anything to screw this up. And that's why I said the military was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. And I did feel a connection with my father and my grandfather, kind of a family legacy, so to speak. Uh, as far as other people, yeah, I'm, I served with a lot of people that they had uh, military background, you know, in their family somewhere, somehow. So yeah, that's a, that's a good, that's a good point. How many deployments did you have? I only had two deployments and I, well, I guess, I guess I should say one and a half. My first deployment was with the big red one. Most people know it as the big red one, but I saw the big red one in France. I saw the monument. Yeah. The uh, band of brothers, the movie band of brothers. Oh my gosh. Have you seen that? I call it a movie because we pretty much binge the whole thing in like a couple of days. <laughs> that miniseries is so powerful, isn't it not? I mean, oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, the Big Red One was, I guess you could say it was a kind of cool being a part of the Big Red One too. Uh, my first duty station was in Schweinfurt, Germany, and we deployed out of there, uh, mechanized tanks and Bradleys. My second deployment was with the 10th Mountain Division, and that was out of Port Drum, New York. So shortly after I returned from my first deployment, I went to New York and I don't, I don't really, I, I don't think I was in New York very long, maybe a year, but it wasn't much longer than a year. And then I was back in Iraq. I had just about six months in country before I got injured. Were you married before you joined? 
was I married before? Yeah, before you joined the service? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And how was that for your family with you being gone? Uh, my wife then, uh, unfortunately, my ex-wife, uh, yet again, you know, kind of a fortunate conversation. A lot of people don't like talking about divorce. A lot of people don't like talking about death and suicide. Guess what? I'm on marriage number three, but... Hey, life happens. The life first happens. two marriages, I was in my early 20s, and um, uh, they lasted not even like a year and a half. And this one, I've been married for almost 25 years. So I think this one's going to stick. <laughs> I judge no one. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, you know, and, and you know, it's, it's, I think that there's a lot of layers to that, but I don't mind talking about it, especially when you look at it from a military standpoint. Exactly. You know, because it is a challenging lifestyle, but I was married when I joined the military and I had the full support of my wife at the time, because as you remember, 9-11-2001, our nation was attacked in one of the worst attacks in history, not just American history, but history in itself. We lost almost 4,000 innocent lives in a matter of hours. I talked to my wife about it, but I was probably going to join with or without her support if I had the opportunity because it was one of those lifelong dreams. Yet, you know, being a, a, a husband or a partner, I wanted to include her in the conversation. And of course, she was like, if this is something you feel like you need to do, do it. I'll support you. Uh, and so, yeah, we had a, a great military life. Me being blown up obviously added a, another dynamic to relationships on top of being gone literally half of my marriage. And I mean that in ever since we figured it up between my deployments and trainings and schools, and I was gone half of my marriage up to the point where I was injured. When I got injured, yeah, you know, marriage is tough anyway. Any relationship is tough. You know, it comes with challenges. But when you throw a grenade right in the middle of a relationship, it adds so many more dynamics. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, people can try to judge me, but they weren't there. And I know the decisions that I made, it was not just for the benefit of myself. It wasn't selfish reasons why I got a divorce. I, you know, I, I wanted to see her happy, and we weren't happy where we were. I wanted to see my children happy. They weren't happy with the current situation. You know, it was, a, it was a situation that I prayed about for like months, maybe even a year or two. And then I, we tried counseling. We tried everything. Because, you know, like you're saying, you're in this relationship 25 years. We were in a relationship for almost 15 years. That's not something you can easily walk away from. You know, it, it's really got to be a, a conversation. You know, it's got to be a, something really strong motivating you to walk away from a commitment that you've been into for 15 to 20 years. So, yeah. Mine was made for me. They both left me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can laugh at it now because it was the best thing, but, you know, it was extramarital affairs and, you know, like whatever, but I am so grateful <laughs> that's what happened. Yeah, you know, and sometimes you can look at that. And I look at it now and the results are she's happy. She's remarried. And crazy thing is, is she ended up remarrying a, a, another veteran. And I was like, I thought you were getting out of this life, you know? <laughs> I'm happy you brought that up though, Shiloh, because I know that military and deployments and all the time gone has to be hard on families. 
it's really difficult. At one point in my recovery process, they were talking about, you know, because there were so many back-to-back deployments during that time frame, uh, was it 2003, four, all the way up until, you know, a few years ago, really, uh, you know, all these multiple deployments back and forth to Iraq and Afghanistan, the divorce rate was as high as 98% Ugh. military population. So that's, that was kind of unbelievable. How long were your deployments? Your first one was how long? A year. One a year. year. And your second, you were how far into it? Okay, so I made it uh, about six months into that deployment, and then I was injured. Now, the rest of the team ended up staying a year and about a month or two. Would have been a much longer deployment had I not been injured and uh, returned back to the States. And are you willing to share, and it's, you know, whatever you feel comfortable with how much you want to share about the day of the injury, what happened? Uh, absolutely, I don't mind sharing. And, and yes, it is personal, but I have, and this is, I'm going to say this, not just for my benefit or your benefit, but hopefully for maybe a better that's listening out there. I have found a, I guess you could say therapeutic in a way to get out there and share my story because it's not just my story. You know, I serve with a lot of wonderful, wonderful patriots that believed in the mission and believed in what we were doing. And even those that, that didn't necessarily believe in violence or, you know, the, the whole concept that, or the stereotype that comes with being a service member, you know, some of the people that didn't necessarily even believe in that, they still believed in helping people. And so that's what we looked at while we were on, on these deployments is we're here to get rid of the bad guys or get them arrested, you know, take them off the, the playing field and try to let the communities grow and, and let the civilians thrive. That was our goal. Uh, we can get into that another time, but my injury date, uh, if that, is that what you want me to do to talk about my injury date? Yes, please. All right, so my second deployment was with the 10th Mountain Division. And this deployment, we were uh, light infantry or we, what's considered light military, which means we were in Humvees. We weren't on big mechanized vehicles like the tanks and Bradleys for like the first deployment. Then the second deployment was a little bit different. This was in 2006 and seven, considered OIF-4 or Operation Iraqi Freedom. And then they put the classification numbers one, two, three, and four, you know, but we were the fourth deployment. Our first deployment was the second deployment. So that'd give you an idea, it was kind of quick. But yeah, so, Within a year, the mission had changed from, you know, taking a, a combat stance and, uh, you know, going toe to toe with the bad guys, so to speak. This one was more about hearts and minds and helping establish the government, uh, local governments, and trying to make it a better, better environment, not just for us, but especially for the people that live there in Iraq and, and the communities that we had to operate in. Uh, on February 19th, 2007, we were out there. Can I stop you just for a second? Yes, ma'am. This blows my mind, I have to tell you, because you are the third person. This blows my mind, Shiloh. You are the third person that I have spoken to where your traumatic injuries happened in 2007 in Iraq. It was a tough year. I, have you heard of uh, Greg Gatson? 
Oh, absolutely. Me and Greg are really good friends. So. Oh, really? I had Greg on. He is so awesome. I love Greg. I talked to Greg. I think his was February or May. I can't remember of 2007. And then I have another person coming on who is a double amputee as well from Iraq. And his was in 2007. And you are in 2007. That, I don't know why, but that's crazy to me. Yeah. Crazy. So that era right there, I think it was between 2005 and I'm going to say 2009, there were a lot, a bunch of us that were just getting blown up, so to speak. You know, there was a big era of IEDs, dismounted operations, you know, people losing their legs or arms. You know, in my particular case, Humvees. And the area that we were working in was extremely hostile. And, you know, and I'm talking about both fronts you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. I don't know who the bad guys were that they all got together and come up with a plan to put all these IEDs out there, but man, there were sure a bunch of them. I'm sorry, I had to interrupt your story. I didn't have to, but it just, it blows my mind. No, that's perfect. You can interject anytime you want. You know, if you want me to emphasize on something, please do that. Uh, you know, because I, I want to make sure and give a good story, not just for you, but for your audience. And, you know, these interviews and these podcasts that, that you're doing, I know it's meant to help the community, encourage the community, you know, positive changes in people's lives, you know, not necessarily, oh, we think you should join the military, oh, we think you should be a patriot, but these conversations that you're having with individuals like Greg and myself, we overcame the very worst day that probably most people could face, you know, and then when other people listen to our stories, they put that in perspective of their lives, and it gives them a bit of a, a, a boost thinking, well, you know what? I know I'm facing a big pile of poo right now. I think I can overcome it based on that dude just lost his legs and he overcame it and he became a movie star. And his and, ears um, came off in the store. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I mean, so yeah, you say, once you hear some of these dynamic stories like Greg's and, and some of these other individuals that overcame just amazing odds, you know, tremendous odds and, and turned into a very blessed life, it inspires people. I want you to interject if you Okay, can. all right, okay, yeah. please proceed. So February 19, 2007, we were out there visiting with some of the locals in our area. All of the roads in that area were named after heavy metal bands because it was literally heavy metal. There were IEDs going off every day in our area. And just to explain, IEDs are improvised explosive devices. That means they could literally be anything. It could be a grenade, it could be tank rounds buried in the ground, it could be a pressure plate, you know, you run over it and a bomb goes off. I mean, it, it can literally be anything that explodes. Well, with that being said, you have to be extremely vigilant about your surroundings. I mean, every step you take, if you think it's suspicious, stop. Unfortunately, you know, the better we got about identifying IEDs, the better they got at hiding them. On February 19th, we were visiting with the locals, trying to build rapport and just find out a, a census of how everybody feels about us being there and what we can do better to help them. While we're there visiting with these people, we got a call to investigate a possible IED. 
Uh, we wanted to get over there and secure the site as quickly and as safely as possible so nobody gets hurt. You know, IEDs aren't prejudiced. They don't distinguish between a military vehicle or a vehicle loaded down with a family. So, you know, we didn't want anybody hurt. We'll get over there, we're driving it you know, safely and cautiously as we can, but yet we're trying to get there because, yeah, you know, we want to secure the site. I was the third truck in the convoy and my Humvee literally erupted. Our Humvee was hit with an IED that was estimated to be 700 pounds of explosives buried in the road. Wow. It literally just shredded my Humvee. Three of the four Humvee doors were blown off. And this isn't, you know, this, this wasn't like a, a soft Humvee. These are, these are the ones that had the big metal plates on them. I mean, it was a heavy Humvee. Older Humvee, but still it was, it was equipped with uh, equipment. So I had five people in the Humvee. And only two of us survived. Uh, uh, my driver and I were the only two that survived in the block. I lost my gunner and I lost my two dismounts. I shouldn't say that. I, mean, I lost my three friends, my brothers. Uh, but anyway, uh, after the explosion, I don't really remember a lot because I was knocked unconscious. They left me in the Humvee to take care of the driver because he was awake and they thought that I was dead. So while I was in the Humvee and they were tending to him, another explosion went off, burned me even more. So you hear my little doggy barking outside. <laughs> I can't. <Just> have company. <laughs> anyway, we got a, uh, we had that second explosion. Everybody left me in the Humvee because they were thinking, well, if he wasn't dead the first time, he's certainly dead now. Once I woke up, I started trying to kick myself out of the Humvee, um, pushing on the door, kicking on the door. Do you remember waking up or is that what you were told? No, I remember waking up. Oh. I, don't, I don't know the time lapse, you know, from when I was unconscious to when I woke up, but it was long enough for, for the second explosion to happen. And uh, anyway, so once I woke up, I remember trying to call up a radio report first and I was keying the hand mic. You know, because that's what you do as a truck commander. You let everybody know what's going on. It's just like a muffled memory. It's a reaction. And so anyway, I was trying to key the mic. I wasn't hearing anything. I looked over and the cable was burnt completely off of the hand mic. So I threw the hand mic down. And I remember looking and I started pushing on the door. And the only door left on my vehicle. And my arm felt funny. As I looked down, looking at my right arm, I could see that my uniform was practically melted into my skin. It was like it was seared into my skin. And I kept thinking, man, that's gotta hurt. But it wasn't hurting yet. So I, I knew I needed to get out of the Humvee. I started kicking on the door. And uh, the challenge was, is that when the IED went off, it, all that asphalt and uh, uh, dirt and everything from the explosion, it lifted the Humvee in the air. And when the Humvee came back down, it was in, kind of embedded in all that loose dirt and asphalt. So. I don't know how I got out of the Humvee, but I would like, I'd like to think it was divine intervention, you know? So you weren't, you weren't in pain at this time? I wasn't really in panic. It was more like, I got to get out of the truck because I knew it was on fire. I could feel the heat and I just knew I needed to get out. And you yourself, you weren't on fire? I, I wasn't. Well, I didn't think I was. Okay. Uh, you know, so yeah, it, it's, yeah, at the moment. You know, all I've seen was the hand mic, my arm, and I knew the urgency of getting out of the vehicle. So I get out and I'm standing there and I'm taking in everything and I'm looking at my Humvee and my Humvee's just, I mean, black with smoke. And uh, I remember 
seeing everybody over there trying to take care of my driver and my driver he was a big kid and i mean this in a, in a very general in a very you know a literal sense you know he's big he's fresh out of high school football players like six two six three maybe taller you know big kid he hadn't even been in iraq very long he'd only been there a couple months you know well I'm trying to bark orders now because I'm an NCO and I'm telling people to pull security and call up a nine line, stabilize item, and this and that. Well, everybody just stops and stares at me because they're like, what the hell? And I'm sure that they're looking at me. You know, I'm sure I look like a hot mess, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he was on fire, so I'm sure you were a hot mess. Anyway, I'm standing there and I'm trying to bark orders. Well, all of a sudden, one of my buddies is waving at me, trying to get me to come to him and walk away from my Humvee. He wasn't trying to come out there and get me just yet. Well, I wave him off, you know, because I, I looked down on my, and I'm on fire. My body armor was on fire, but I didn't realize it. I just felt my leg burning. And I remember looking down at my leg and the, the material from my body armor was melting and landing on my pants and burning me. So I took my body armor off. I get it on the ground. I get the fire put out. Well, all of a sudden, I look back up to see what my buddy was wanting. And he was trying to, he was, I could see his mouth moving, but I, I wasn't hearing anything. Well, all of a sudden, he makes contact with me and grabs me almost like a football run. And he's picking me up and trying to get me away from my home beat. What I didn't realize and what I didn't hear because of the blast had me temporarily deafened, the bullets inside my truck were cooking off you know the fire was so intense that it was literally making the bullets explode and there were bullets flying all around me and i didn't know so once i took my body armor off they realized that they had to come retrieve me and he ran out there and grabbed me and got me away from that humvee well they lay me on the ground and we start prepping me for the medevac my driver comes over me and him were both getting prepped you know stabilized we can hear the helicopter coming in. Everything happens, you know, I mean, just the way it should. And it's probably one of the reasons that me and him both are still here today. It's because of the initial care that we got right there. Well, we get on the helicopter. Well, I'll take that back. Before we get on the helicopter, uh, I'm joking around trying to make a lot of this, but I still had no idea how injured I was. I'm laying on the ground and I start panicking because my roommate comes over. He's visiting with me, checking on me. And I could see a reflection in his glasses. I could see that my face was charred black. I could see that my ears were gone. My nose was gone. I could see that I had blood running everywhere. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, that can't be me. Uh, I started going into shock. My age may have played a role in me handling that situation right then because I started trying to calm myself down. I started trying to take charge of myself. And I remember looking at my hands again, you know, trying to say, okay, just how bad is this? So I can process this and start trying to figure out how, what I'm gonna do next. And I remember looking at my left hand and the glove was torn off and kind of burnt through. And it just looked like a big, bad mess. And jokingly in my mind, my first thought was, I better get a day off for this. You know, because when you're in Iraq, you how, could you, how could you even be thinking that? Oh my goodness. You are a special case, aren't you, Shiloh? I told you, it's a coping mechanism. It's, it's crazy, I know, but 
anyway, I, I did. I, that was really my thought is, man, I better get a day off for this, you know? And, and whether it was me coping and, and dealing with it or whether it was a literal joke or, you know, literal sin, you know, uh, it, I think it was kind of funny in my mind and it helped me process. Well, I start working myself back down and well, anyway, I'm asked, I start talking to my driver because he's, he's panicking still. As I said, you know, he's a young guy. So I'm trying to be his NCO now. And I'm like, hey, man, I said, you know where our guys are? Where's our, where's our friends? And I'm asking other people. Nobody's telling us anything. And I didn't know. They, they, I, don't know I don't even know if they knew at the time that, you know, our other guys were, were killed. We get on the helicopter. We get to the green zone, which is where the hospital was and inside the biop. Uh, oh, I take that back. It wasn't in the biop. Green zone. Well, it might have been in the biop. Anyway, so we get to the, we get to the green zone. We get to the hospital. Um, Adam goes in one direction and I go on the other. Well, I'm laying on the operating table and they're cutting my clothes off and I keep asking everybody. I'm like, have you seen my friends? Where's, where's my other friends? Where's my soldiers at? Nobody would tell me or nobody knew, which whatever the case. And then all of a sudden I was like, somebody freaking talk to me. I was like, where in the hell are my friends? And then the doctor that's standing up above me, you know, I'm laying down and he's up here by my head. Nobody's making eye contact, which is also kind of freaking out. This doctor looks down at me, makes perfect eye contact and said, you'll find out in a couple of months. I left a big question mark in my mind, but literally that's the last thing I remember. At that moment, I was medically induced in a coma that I spent the next 48 days in. Well, when you, I'm, I shouldn't say I'm blown away because that's not really the term I want to use, right? It's not appropriate to use in this circumstance. I'm trying to think of a different way to word it, that you weren't in more pain. Is that because maybe it was third degree burns and the nerves were gone or you were in shock? I, I'm confused why there wasn't, I would think you would be riddled with pain. Uh, that, that's a really good question. I think it was a flash burn and it didn't hurt because you, I think you hit it right on the head. Is I heard that when you have third degree burns like that and it's like a flash burn, uh, it, it does sear the, the uh, nerves. And so you don't really have a lot of feeling. I mean, it's uncomfortable. I remember being uncomfortable and once I started realizing my situation, the more uncomfortable I became. And uh, it was just not a really good feeling, which is another reason that they medically induce burn survivors because the pain is so intense that once you do start feeling pain and once they have to start debriding you, which means they have to literally scrape all that stuff off of you. Once they start doing that, the pain medication that they would have to give you to cope with that would do more damage to you than, you know, I, I guess the pain would, I, I don't, I don't, I guess the way they say is like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. So they just put you to sleep. And that was, that was it for me. You know, and I, I can tell you this, while I was in that coma, it was the worst place I'd ever been in my life. And I can tell you, it's probably the, as close to hell as I ever want to be. Everything was dark scary painful i felt helpless hopeless and it was almost like this twilight of where you're in an alternate reality but you also know you're in a dream but you don't know if you can tell the difference or not 
that coma thing is amazing. Do you dream? Do you hear voices? I could hear family members, uh, but obviously I couldn't interact with them, which was kind of that, that hopeless feeling. You know, it's like you can hear your loved one's voices and familiar voices, yet you can't communicate back. And, and it was, it's like I said, it was one of the worst feelings. And once I woke up from that coma, I didn't want to sleep again. I did not want to sleep because I was always scared that if I went to sleep, I wouldn't wake up and I'd end up back at that place. So it took me a long time to overcome that. I mean, it was, it was very nightmarish. Do you remember the day you woke up and did you know what was going on, where you were, what was happening, what had happened? Great question. Uh, and the answer is, I do not. I don't remember day one. I don't really remember uh, a lot of the timeline. You know, so I, th I think there's different things that happened at different times, but it's kind of jumbled up because I was so heavily medicated still, even though you come out of the coma, I was on so many meds. It was just unbelievable. You know, the, the uh, I mean, I don't even know what all I, I had to take, but you know, it was a lot of pain meds and it was, it had its own, own challenges. But I can tell you there was this cornerstone in my recovery that I remember. And it was a really bad situation where you know, I, I mean, yeah, I feel like I was awake, you know, people would come visit me in the hospital room, but it was weird because I never really thought about it. I hadn't left the bed. Uh, you know, I just laid in the hospital bed, watched TV, family would come and visit. My mom, she came in every morning and she'd rub my feet because that was the only thing that she could touch. Uh, she'd rub my feet because it, that was how, how we had a physical contact, you know, and it was probably one of the most soothing moments for me a part of the day and then she would feed me breakfast because I still couldn't use my hands well, one day there was a <laughs> seemed like a team of people came in and they were like hey Sergeant Harris today we want you to get up out of bed and, and you're going to take 10 steps for us mentally I was aware of the situation and I was thinking you know what? I'm a combat soldier. 10 steps. I'm going to show these guys how it's done. <laughs> True. Just getting out of bed was excruciating. I mean, it was like every bone, every muscle, everything hurt and ached. And just once I got out of bed, I was thinking, oh crap, you know, this is, this is real. This is really bad. What was the extent of your injuries? So I have third degree burns on a third of my body. Uh, which is, you know, mostly upper torso, you know, my head, my arms, face, some around my hip and my side, my flank, a little bit on my legs. If you know anything about burn survivors, you know that they have this uh, graph and donor type situation going on where they take good skin from areas, which is called the donor, and then they use that good skin and they run it through an expander and then they use, they put it over burn areas where it takes either too long to regenerate skin or it won't regenerate skin at all. Put that over that and anyway, so yeah, all in all, I'm about 85% scar tissue or you know scars from head to toe from where they took the good skin. They pretty much took a panel off my whole back. They took a piece off my chest and my stomach and those were horrible coming back to heal because they basically just peel you like an onion. And, and then that's got to grow skin back. And it's in some of the areas where you move the most, you know, your stomach, your back. So if you're laying on your back, 
you stick to the sheets. I mean, it was just incredible. It was horrible. And you lost your ears and your nose? I did. Uh, my nose was completely restructured, uh, reconstructed. And my lips were mostly reconstructed, too. You can't even I, tell. They look... I got some good kissers. <laughs> They're always plump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the surgeon that I had... He was so amazing. I loved him so much. And uh, I, I apologize. I can't remember his name right off. Uh, uh, he was an amazing doctor. And when he left, he, uh, he, was, he was pretty much the one that did all my work, you know, reconstructive stuff. And when he left, it, I didn't stop doing the surgeries because he left. But at the same time, you know, I, I had had like 50 or 60 surgeries in like two or three years. I hit this wall and I was just like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I got to settle and see where I'm at because I was pretty comfortable with where I was as far as physically how I looked. I was like, you know, it's, I, I think I look pretty good. I got a decent nose. You know, <laughs> I got good lips. You know, <laughs> uh, it, it, I don't see me getting much prettier, you know, and I was comfortable with who I was. How many fingers did you lose? Uh, I lost three fingers altogether, both my pinkies, so no more pinky promises, and then I lost my left index finger. Yeah. What was the hardest part when you really saw yourself waking up, when you woke up and you saw yourself for the first time and was really cognizant of what was going on, was there a part of you that was the most difficult to see or to come to terms with? Speaking for myself, I was a bit of a vain person, you know, and I, I cared how my hair looked. I usually kept myself very well groomed. You know, it's not that I flaunted that I felt like I was handsome or anything like that, you know, although, you know, I didn't think I was bad looking, uh, you know, but I, I took care of myself. The first time I seen my face, I was a bit devastated. I mean, it was, I was thinking, no way is that me. And the funny thing was, is, uh, nobody had realized that I hadn't seen myself yet. Did uh, you have a nose at this time or no nose? I didn't have a nose. Still. Uh, I mean, like, see straight, straight in, you know, uh, gone. Uh, it looked like a red skull from Captain yes, America. Yes, of course. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's kind of crazy. Uh, but yeah, uh, I just... I was thinking, I can't do this. You know, and it was the same thing with, you know, standing up and, and walking for the first time. I was like, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. And I kind of mentally crippled myself there around that time frame, you know, when I was taking in all of the damage and where I really was, the situation that was facing me, I was overwhelmed and I emotionally mentally crippled myself because I was thinking, can't do this. I won't do this. doesn't matter what I do. It's not going to get any better. That was the mentality I had. Well, at one point my dad came into my hospital room and everybody could tell I was discouraged because I didn't care what I said. I didn't care who I hurt. And I was kind of an asshole. And then uh, my dad came in one day and he's looking at me. He just stood at the foot of the bed with his arms crossed. I knew what that meant, but again, I didn't really care. And I finally, I was like, yes, sir. And he said, 
Are you done, soldier? It took me a minute, you know, I said, I'm processing. I'm like, like, what? And then he said it a little bit more sternly, you know, like, are you done, soldier? And he just stood there staring at me with these cold blue eyes. And as it sunk in, I was like, no, sir, I'm not done. And he said, then get your ass up and start doing the work that you know you have to do, son. I said, yes, sir. And so I did. I started putting one foot in front of the other because literally that was my job. Learn how to walk again. Learn how to use my hands again. Learn how to talk again. I mean, I know that sounds so crazy. It even sounds crazy for me to say it. Yet at the same time, I literally had to teach myself how to brush my teeth again. And unfortunately, I didn't have a lot of hair, so I didn't have to learn how to brush my hair. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I had to learn how to eat again. You know, I mean, my hands were so messed up that I couldn't even hold a fork. They'd have to put uh, like a cushion on the fork. And then my arms, I mean, I had to learn how to just function again. And I can say that today I'm so blessed. I mean, I, I work out, I have a pretty healthy lifestyle. Uh, you know, I get to do a lot of things with my children that is considered a bit adventurous. You know, if you would have told me then that I'd be where I'm at today, you'd have never made me believe it because I had convinced myself that I'm handicapped beyond capacity. I'm handicapped to the point where I'm not going to be a functional human being again. And that was a lie. I told myself a lie and I tried to believe it and thank God that it didn't stick. When did you find out about your friends? One day, my driver ended up coming to see me and it was, obviously it was emotional. I didn't know he was going through his recovery there. Well, he came into the hospital room and we're visiting crying of course you know there's crying there's a lot of tears first thing he does he walks into my hospital room and he's calling me sergeant harris and i'm like first of all i think we're past that you know call me shiloh please and i'm like you're adam you're my brother we're friends and of course he's crying i'm crying and then he kept apologizing to me over and over i'm so sorry i'm so sorry sergeant i'm so sorry this happened and I'm like, well, there's nothing for you to be sorry about. I was like, it's not your fault. I was like, if it's anybody's fault, it was my fault because I was the truck commander. I was the NCO. Well, that didn't set well with him. He's like, no, it's the bad guy's fault. If it's anybody's fault, it's that bad person that put the bomb in the road. Well, I'll agree with that. And I said, anyway, I said, one of these days we'll all sit around and have a beer you know, insinuating that we're the whole crew is going to be able to say, talk about it, heal from it. And he just looks at me with that coy look like, you know, well, I knew right away that we had lost somebody. Uh, I said, okay. I said, who did we lose? He said, we lost everybody, Sergeant Harris. We lost everybody. We're the only two that survived.
took me a minute to process. <clears throat> I started crying. I tried to suck it up long enough to watch him leave. And I, I lost it. I, for three days, I cried. I did not even know it was humanly possible to cry for that long, but I literally cried for three days. I cried until there was no more tears. And then I just sat there and, <laughs> you know, did that breathing thing. And I begged the doctors and the nurses, anybody to let my family stay just one night with me because every night when everybody left and the lights went out, I was there by myself with my thoughts, with these images that I had failed my soldiers and that I got them killed. Oh, Shiloh. And it was, although everything was hard and horrible, that was by far the worst. <clears throat> anyway, I have been able to live with the pain and use it as a motivator to try to do good things. Because I, I try to look at it as what if the roles were reversed? How would I want my soldiers to live their life? How would I want my friends to live their life? And I can tell you wholeheartedly, I would want them to live their life to the fullest. You know, hold on to the good memories and hold on to the lessons that we've learned, but go out there and live their life to the fullest. And that's what I try to do each and every day. I hope you don't carry that guilt with you still. Every day. I carry the guilt each and every day. And it's, I understand that it's a part of my life. The guilt that you failed or survivor's guilt? I have survivor's guilt. I, I have learned not to question that day because I've ran the scenario over a million times. I mean, numerous times. And I've talked to, you know, other soldiers that were there that day. I've talked to my leadership and each one of them, you know, it was like, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. But let me talk about that for just a second, because this is a really good conversation. When you start talking about survivor's guilt, my sergeant major, which is, you know, the guy over our entire squadron, he felt guilty. He felt like, you know, it was his fault. He should have been there. He, there, was, he, there was something he could have done to prevent that. The commander that worked, you know, above all of us, he felt the pain. He felt like it was his fault. He felt like he could have done something better because he's the leader. You know, my platoon sergeant, he blamed himself. I mean, everybody that was there feels this, like I could have done something different to prevent that. I could have done something better. Now, this is how far it goes. There was people from my first deployment that called me and told me, if I had been there, this wouldn't have happened to you. And they're crying to me. They're going, I'm sorry that this happened. I'm sorry I let you down. And I'm like, how can this even remotely be your fault? Well, you remember how we were as a team before? And I'm like, look, man. I was like, for goodness sakes. I was like, you didn't put the bomb in the road. You had no choice about it. I mean, seriously. So survivor's guilt, I mean, has this ripple effect that goes on and on and on. And you'd be surprised at the people that are affected by it.
but I've, I've learned to use it as a motivator. I've learned to use it to help other people because it's like I said, I've ran the scenario in my head so many times. We did everything right. I mean, the day kind of started off rough. I mean, we had all these different dynamics that affected us, but it was not circumstances that we could have prevented. It's not things that could have been changed. It was just a bad day and shit happened. So there it is. And you've got to learn to live with it. You've got to learn to absorb it. And you know, my wife, she's a counselor. She talks about, we've got to let, learn to let things go. Um, I believe that to a certain truth. Yet at the same time, there are things from my past that I don't want to let go because they fuel me. They fuel me to do good things. They fuel me in the lessons that I've learned from them. And the pain reminds me of the lessons, the hard lessons. The pain reminds me of being vigilant. The pain reminds me of being, being aware of my situation. And you know what? It doesn't matter where you are in life. It could be a car accident right out here on the highway. You know, I mean, there's, you look at the news, there's crime happening all the time. You know, and I, I want to be prepared, but I'm not super vigilant, you know, where I'm like crazy combat boots guy, you know, running around the house and combat gear every day, you know, trying to protect my house, you know. But I do take care of myself and I take care of my family to the best of my ability. Are you um, in physical pain still? Uh, yes, that's a good question. Uh, I am, but I see a chiropractor on a regular basis and uh, I'm off all my pain meds. So, you know, for the most part, I have uh, some neck issues, back issues, and every now and then I have just like weird pains here and there. And I'm sure it's like nerve things. Uh, but yeah, I, I live with pain pretty regular, yet I've learned to even cope with that and deal with that uh, in healthy, healthy ways. So here's a question that's, I don't know, I'm interested to see what your answer is to this. Okay. Was your sacrifice worth it? Oh, absolutely. No question. And would I do it again? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it might be hard to get me to go back to Iraq, but you know, honestly, though, I would absolutely do it. You know, the, the sacrifice, I, I, the only thing that I wish I could change, you know, of course, is the, the lives lost. Uh, during our campaign, but you think about this, you know, the, a lot of the men and women that served in the military and the families that supported them while they were deployed knew that their family members joined the military because their that's where their passion was, they're patriots. You know, they believed in protecting what was right, right here in the United States, their family, their homes, uh, serving in the military to you know, I had that, uh, uh, so, oh, I'm missing the word. Oh my gosh. Uh, foundation, protecting our nation. You know, you know where I'm going with that. And I'm sorry, the word evades me. There is a word for it. I'm looking for it. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's just, you know, we all had good intentions when we joined the military. But when you sign those documents saying, I'm going to join the United States military, that's basically saying I'm willing to die for my country. A lot of people don't really put that in perspective, especially if they're thinking in terms of video games. There is no redo. There is no extra lives. There's no game reset. If you get killed 
on a battlefield while you're joining in the military, while you're serving in the military, that's it. That's the end game. And you think about this, there's so many people, everybody that was in my vehicle knew the consequences, knew what could happen. Now, I wish I could change it because I value their lives. I value, I value life in general. I think life is one of Earth's most precious resources. You know, uh, I believe in preservation. I believe in conservation. And I love everybody. And I didn't join the military to go hurt people. I joined the military to protect my nation. My last question for you, Shiloh, is what does America mean to you? I believe that America, in my opinion, stands for an ideology that we are one of the final places, as far as nations, we are one of the final nations that truly has freedoms. One of the, the f final nations that is full of opportunities and people visualize the United States as a utopia. You know, I'm going to the United States because it's full of opportunities and it is. I don't know if I should say that we're the greatest nation on earth because I've visited other countries and I have a lot of respect for other countries. And I, I want to say for the most part, you know, a lot of the nations that are a democracy and, you know, have, they have the best intentions for their communities and for their society. The United States like I said, it's just our stance in the, you know, you think about this, how many nations do you know goes to help other nations the way that we do? Not many, you know, maybe a couple, they'll send a little bit of aid, a little bit of support, but we're there literally for everybody. Our nation is there to help everybody. Final frontier of freedom. Thank you for sharing your American story. I appreciate it, Shiloh. Thank you so very much, Tina, for allowing me to be on your show. Shiloh and I covered a wide array of topics, PTSD, divorce, the terrifying nightmare of a coma, adapting to a new way of life, and finally coming out on top. Shiloh Harris, you are a warrior, a motivator, and a champion of life. I am honored to call you a friend. Shiloh's story needs to be heard. Shiloh's story deserves to be heard. If you are as inspired by Shiloh as I am, share this podcast episode with friends and family. Please take a moment, leave a rating and review. Your action helps open this podcast to more listeners. Let's work together to share these American stories. My next episode is Matthew Bradford. His model is no legs, no vision, no problem. After listening to Matt, there are no excuses. Until next Friday, see you then.